This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Today, we're talking about five different atonement theories. We're going to be running through moral influence, uh, recapitulation, ransom theory, Christus Victor, the satisfaction theory of Anselm, and penal substitution. It's going to be an exciting episode. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Well, guys, in this episode, we're going to be talking about atonement theory. Not all atonement theories are made equal, uh, but we also don't think atonement theories necessarily need to be at war with each other. So we're going to be talking about what atonement theory is, uh, how we should be thinking about it. If you haven't been introduced uh, to atonement theory, this would be a great episode to start off with as you're beginning your studies. Uh, But before I introduce the subject and my co-host, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. So if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description. Go down uh, and click the uh, donate uh, tab there on PayPal, or I say tab, it's a, it's a link there, or PayPal. Uh, if you give on PayPal, as low as five bucks a month, you get access to extra content, uh, such as live Q&As, book clubs, those kinds of things. If you donate on PayPal, just a one-time gift there uh, that would be super appreciated, helps support the channel. Uh, also, it's just probably worth mentioning, check that conference out, Remnant 2023 Healing and Deliverance, March Second through the fourth, there's tons of information about the Healing and Deliverance Conference. If you go check out the link in the description, it'll give you times, it'll give you dates, it'll give you kind of the general scope of the conference. Uh, but it'll be a great way to like learn about healing, learn about deliverance, see the stuff happen in front of you. You can do live Q&As or one of those sessions. So it would be pretty spectacular. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to my buddy, Michael Roundtree. Uh, how you doing there, bud? Over here in the Oklahomas, I'm doing good. This was a double header for us today. We just had oh, three. Uh, filmed a. It's actually yeah. This was a full day, but we did all our remnant filming today, and uh, an extra one for somebody else who invited us on their show. So pretty full day today, but uh, yeah, excited to talk a little bit about atonement theory. And uh, Josh, I thought maybe I'd start us out with this little quote from Anselm on the virginal conception on ori- and, and on original sin. This is from page 329, but I think it's going to set up our discussion well. I'm going to read it. He says, there can be, uh, there can be another, uh, can't be another explanation besides, or, or bleh, sorry, can be another explanation besides the one I offered for how God took a sinless human being out of the sinful mass of the human race. After all, nothing prohibits there being a plurality of reasons for one and the same thing, any one of which can be sufficient in it in itself. So, uh, you know, I've seen just on the, in the Twitter world, uh, all these, uh, you know, people attacking penal substitutionary atonement, and this was invented in the Protestant Reformation, not true, and, you know, all of these kind of things. And there's this major move toward Christus Victor, another model of the atonement, and 
Uh, and, and when we talk about models, what we're trying to explain is the mechanics of how this happens. Like what, why, you know, I had a, uh, a Muslim Imam, uh, I, I was friends with back when I lived in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And we, we kind of hash it out over these issues. Like why did God have to give his son to die in order for his sins to be forgiven? Why doesn't he just forgive? And so we kind of go back and forth and I was sharing, although I didn't use the language of atonement theory with him. Um, I, I shared, uh, I, I used my knowledge of just from the scripture, the mechanics of how this happens. And there are a number of different ways of talking about it. What Anselm is getting at here is we don't have to limit ourselves to like, hey, it's only like, hey, if I'm siding with Christus Victor over here, which we'll explain what that is, then that means I can't believe in penal substitutionary atonement or vice versa. Uh, there, there's a way of talking about these where we can affirm multiple atonement theories at the same time because so much was happening at the cross as you would expect the central moment and event of human history doesn't it make sense that there's more than one thing happening at once and so the mechanics can get a little complicated and so our goal in the show is to kind of try to remove some of the dust that's in the air and say here is what was happening and why it was necessary that it happened in this way for Jesus to die for the forgiveness of sins. So yeah, I think it's um, also important. You use this phrase model, Michael, and I, I like model more than I like theory because in the you. Western world, when we say theory, we often think of like, we're not really sure how it happened, um, but we're going to pontificate. We're going to imagine, you know, like a scientific theory is you've got this hypothesis, this educated guess of how something works. Uh, and then over a period of time, if it can't be disproven, it kind of goes into, you know, scientific theory space from hypothesis space to theory space. Um, and, and what we're doing is we're saying, well, theory might not actually be a good way of talking about atonement because I think you can look at recapitulation and say, that's not a theory that happened that, like that's a part of the atonement you really can't remove christus victor you can't remove christus victor from the atonement that's a thing that happened so i prefer to talk about atonement as models but because theological language says theory um i think we have to use that language but i think it's probably important for the person listening to go oh so these aren't contradictory theories of just people guessing on how this happened. These are actually different models that are trying to explain what was accomplished in the work of the atonement. I think that's just a better way to look at it. There's a book, Mosaic. Uh, uh, it's called, it's called uh, yeah, Mos uh, The Mosaic of Atonement, uh, an, an Integrated Approach to Christ's Work. And I read that book along with William A. Craig's book and some other books on atonement theory, uh, prepping for, for this course. This uh, this video and for a, a, a Bible school that I'll be teaching at soon, uh, but but anyway, all that to be said, I think that that's probably the best way to look at it. And if you want more on models over theories, language, check out that Mosaic book. I think it's a it's a it's a must have when talking about uh, atonement theory. Michael, yeah, you, so good. Sure, why don't we jump first into uh, the worst one? <laughs> I, I mean, worst. Okay, neither Josh nor I likes this falling under the category of atonement theory or atonement model, because we wouldn't say that this in any way explains the mechanics of what's happening in the atonement, in Christ's death for us on the cross. Uh, I'm talking specifically about moral influence theory. And before I, I forget, actually, we're not going to address every single atonement theory today, okay? We're going we're gonna to address, I think we had five of them listed. There are more than this, but... Um, but we're just going to do a, a small smattering of them. But um, 
but the moral influence theory uh, here, here's what we don't we don't like about it. Um, we would view this as more the result of the atonement than the essence and nature and mechanics of the atonement. It doesn't explain for us what was happening on the cross. It explains for us what the result was of what happened on the cross. And there were lots of results of what happened on the cross. And uh, but when we talk about moral influence theory. You can just think about this as uh, the cross influenced morality. I mean, that's kind of mnemonically the best way to remember it. It's it influences morality, and so now some people like some people will want to include this within atonement theory and say like this is just literally why Jesus died. Jesus died so that he could set a model for us to influence us toward having good behavior. And I and they'll stop there as though that is the reason that Jesus died on the cross like it stops right there. There's no substitution, there's no wrath of God, there's no Christus Victor, there's no conquering of principalities and all of that. Jesus is just trying to be a good example and good examples lay down their lives and Jesus laid down his life and so we should, you know, lay our lives down for people. You know that kind of deal. We don't deny that any of that was important and a result of the cross. And we might even go so far as to say this was at least a reason why Jesus died on the cross. But it was sure. far, far from the central reason why Jesus died on the cross. Okay, but here is a good verse for it. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. And this is why we would affirm like, hey, yes, moral influence is real. Like Jesus died on the cross to influence, influence our morals. That's that's part of it, not sufficient, but that's part of what was happening. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says to the Philippians, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Okay, so it's talking about Jesus who went from the highest of the highs. And so when it says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that's not suggesting that Jesus was not God. We have so many passages of Scripture teaching that Jesus is, in fact, God. Uh, Titus 2, 13, our great God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Romans 9, 5 calls Jesus God. I mean, there are a whole bunch of them. John chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the Word of God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So there's just a few off the top of my head. So Jesus didn't cease to be God in his humanity, uh, but he did humble himself by taking on, by adding humanity to his divinity. And further than that, not just becoming the incarnate Son of God, God in the flesh, but also being obedient even unto death. But Paul starts that whole thing out with have this mind among you, uh, among yourselves. So he's saying, look at Christ's humility, and that's the humility that you want to have. Uh, or take 1 Corinthians 9. He's going to say Christ laid down his freedoms for us, and so you lay down your freedoms for others. Uh, so time and again, we see that in the cross, Jesus was a model for us. So we, we believe this is a thing. It is just not uh, nearly sufficient for describing um, the mechanics of what, what happened at the cross. Josh, yeah. did I miss something? No, no, no. I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're saying we agree, right, that we were reconciled to God through Jesus's death and resurrection. 
right? So we're trying to, we're, we're saying, yes, everyone agrees with that, but what's the mechanics? People put forward moral influence and say, hey, moral influence makes sense of the mechanics. And we go, I don't think it does. I mean, it certainly does give us a good example, but why don't we have a, you know, the, the healing atonement theory that says by Christ's wounds, we are healed. And the reason he went to the cross was to heal us. Well, we would say, yes, that's true, but it's not really explaining the mechanics of how Jesus reconciled us to God, right? What's What were the means and why was it necessary to be reconciled to God in this way? The moralism, the, the, the moral influence theory isn't enough. And, and I, I said moralism just now because my next thought was to make sure that the audience understands we are not trying to say the moral influence theory is moralism, right? Be good, be better, because Christ was good. In fact, this theory suggests that we can only be good if we are partakers of that atonement, right? Again, but this this makes it a beneficiary, a subsequent act, rather than, you know, the actual work of atonement, what's actually being accomplished in the atonement. So so I see moral influence. Um, is it historic? Yes. Um, is it biblical? Yes. But is it really... Uh, talking about the way we're reconciled to God? No, I don't think so. And that's why me and Michael think it's probably the weakest of the atonement theories here. But it's certainly it's certainly true. We're not denying that at all. Um, recapitulation, this was uh, popularized by Irenaeus. Um, it really means to relive um, the, the kind of lived experience of humanity. So part of uh, what Christ was doing in the uh, the atonement was reliving what it is to be human in the real human life. So Adam, the first man who was truly human, and when I say truly human, as I mean there was no addition of sin to him. He was perfect. He was complete. He was whole. Um, us in our fallen state, we're actually less than human uh, because sin has been introduced into our lives and it's affected our original nature. So Christ comes and he is truly human in the way that Adam is truly human in that sense. Sin has not been introduced. So uh, Jesus relives the life that Adam lived wrongly in the way that Adam, if he would have been faithful in in, in warding off the serpent, if if, uh, if Satan hadn't deceived him and Eve, uh, they would have in, uh, inherited eternal life. And this idea is that Jesus is recapitulating Adam's first uh, actions. He's reliving the story of humanity and through the atonement is now purchasing that recapitulated life for all of God's people. Um, again, this was popularized by Irenaeus against the heresies. We have this quotation from him. It says, when he, speaking of Jesus, became incarnate and was made man, he recapitulated in himself the long line of human beings and furnished us in a brief comprehensive manner with salvation so that we had, that, sorry, so that what we had lost in Adam, namely uh, to accord to the image and likeness of God that we uh, might recover in Christ Jesus. Um, and that's Irenaeus against the heresy. So what Adam had lost Christ relived and and achieved at the second tree, right? Adam lost eternal life at a tree. Jesus uh, passed on eternal life for all people at a tree. It's recapitulating that story. Yeah. Yeah. A good uh, verse for this would be Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, and it's going to set up Adam against Christ. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus recapitulates. He enters into sort of 
the life story of humanity, if you will, and lives it in the right way, the way God intended. Uh, the next theory we're going to talk about is the ransom theory. And, um, can, and can we ransom- take a, a minute on recapitulation, Michael? Cause I, yeah. I, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on this. I've heard as I'm reading through these books on re on recapitulation, that it is really the, the cohesive piece that lets all the other models work together. Um, Hmm. because because right now there's such a huge push for penal substitutionary atonement i like penal substitutionary atonement i think it's biblical you mean push for or push against (laughs) well i i I believe it i believe in it i'm for it i have an unpopular opinion when it comes to psa but i do think that recapitulation really holds the key to locking these pieces together i think people who hold penal substitution they look at that they see recapitulation and they go Yep, that's biblical. Uh, I see people who who hold, uh, you know, the the ransom theory or the Christus Victor theory also looking to uh, recapitulation, and I think it's really the the theological tissue that holds all of these other atonement theories together. I, I'd be curious if you have yeah. any kind of well, thoughts on that. Well, there's really like two two arguments here. One is like which one is most all encompassing, and which one is most important. Um, and those aren't even necessarily the same. That's um, right. I've heard I've heard more of this debate, the one of uh, which one is more important, which we might we should probably talk about at the end. Um, but uh, as far as which one is most all encompassing, um, you know, I I think an argument can be made that it is the most all encompassing because it so very directly includes the full incarnation leading up to the atonement. Uh, however, somebody who's strong PSA, penal substitutionary atonement, as you and I, Josh, are, um, we could easily come back and say, well, PSA includes the incarnation because Jesus had to die as the innocent and perfect uh, spotless lamb, which meant he had to live a perfect life in advance and and attain to all righteousness so that he could be the perfect sacrifice in our place. And so... Uh, so, but I, I think that the person over here on recapitulation side, they're going to say, yes, but it's more implicit in your theory and it's explicit in our theory. Um, so, I mean, I, I can see it. I don't think that like the answer to that really is going to determine much in terms of our faithfulness to God, as long as Agreed. we have an appreciation for all Christ did. And I think that's the main thing to walk away with. But what do you think? Do you feel like recapitulation is like the the most all encompassing of the atonement theories? Well, I think I think that all of the other theories can affirm it, which I think is really important in in talking about. First of all, just thinking of of atonement theories in models, like it would be hard for a person who has a Christus Victor model of the atonement to then look at ransom theory. Like those two actually seem harder to be uh, compatible to me, um, because in in your ransom theory model, well, we'll get to it in a second. I'll explain why they're not. They're not as easily compatible, whereas I can okay. see recapitulation being compatible with most atonement theories. Um, mm-hmm. and, and because of that, it's like... And, and I, they're all compatible, but yes. you're saying in terms of just like this this like seamless, beautiful alignment kind of deal. Yeah, it like it, it, it seems to affirm everything that the others affirm, and there's no seeming contradiction. Whereas like if I pull two of these together, it, it, it looks... Well, how do I say seeming contradiction? I think people want to make arguments and fights on atonement theory where there aren't any. Like they want to pit Anselm against Irenaeus. And I think that's just foolishness. 
um, when, when you can pull quotes from each of them that look like they're affirming the exact same thing that the other's affirming. Um, you know, uh, or, you know, pit the Reformation against Christus Victor somehow when Luther and Calvin explicitly talk about Christ victoriously conquering the devil in the atonement. So I just, I don't think um, that we need to pick these kinds of sides and these kinds of fights. It would be like saying, you know, uh, the church is the bride, Michael, and Michael coming back and saying, you moron, the the church is the temple of God. And I respond, you know, no, it's definitely the bride. And then Miller shows up and goes, it's the flock, you know, it's, it's the, the household of God. God. It's like all of these are true. They're models in which God is explaining his relationship to us. Uh, in atonement theory, I feel like is the same. It, there are absolutely true statements about the atonement that are being described and not one of them is more true than another. That being said, when we talk about atone, penal substitution, I think it's more applicable to our culture in a way that like Christus Victor was extremely applicable in the first century. And I think that's the reason it was the main view of the atonement. But again, I, I digress. Let's get to it one step at a time. Yeah. Anyway, I, a little, little rabbit trail. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, no, that's good. Rabbit trails are good. So um, ransom theory. Okay. So you could think of Bible verses that talk about ransom. So Mark 10, 45, it says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, uh, which incidentally, Jesus, he's God, but he remains a man for all of eternity. He's called the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So both verses refer to him as a ransom. Now, historically, what was a ransom? A ransom was uh, a payment for liberation, a payment for liberation, generally from slavery. So Jesus sets us free from slavery by paying our ransom. So in that sense, ransom and redemption are uh, sort of like cousins or brothers or sisters or something like that. Um, they're, they're related. There's the word, right? Uh, why? Because the ransom is paid that we might be redeemed from slavery. So, uh, you know, if we read in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So redeem and ransom, they go together. But all of this fits within, within ransom theory. And uh, the ransom theory of the atonement was that a ransom had to be paid, a price had to be paid in order to redeem us from slavery to sin, in order to redeem us from slavery to the devil. Now, on that second one, that's where we start to get into a little trouble. And Josh, I'm going to uh, ask you to kind of explain sort of why is the ransom theory so hotly debated, particularly as it relates to the devil's potential role in this or non-role? Right. So, yeah, the idea is that, well, hey, uh, uh, if Satan comes to God and says, you can't have them, I own them and God can't take them. That means Satan is God's boss somehow, and that God has to submit to Satan in order to give him payment. That being said, I feel like that is in some level, and and hear me out on this, I can see people being upset with that, and I agree. If that's the way it's being articulated, I'm also upset with it. But I feel like that's what people do to PSA. I, I don't think anyone in penal substitution is saying, God is beating the trash out of Jesus because... You know, he's he's jumping in the way and his wrath is furious. And he's like, no, dad, beat me up instead of my brothers. 
and God just beats up Jesus. Like that's just such a horrible cosmic child abuse articulation of penal substitution. It's a it's just a straw man. And I feel like people straw man this one too, as if God is somehow submitting to Satan. Um, if you think of the Narnia uh, passage, this is the best uh, uh, you know illustration of this. Edmund, you know, gets busted. He 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 swears allegiance to the White Witch, and then uh, Aslan goes and makes a deal. And in the movie, at least, which people will think is heresy that I'm quoting the movie over the book, um, you know, the White Witch is, you know, well, you know our laws. The law says da 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 da, and the lion roars at her and says, "Be silent, witch! I was there when it was written." You know. Yeah, which, by the way, is what I quote the to my kids. The deep magic. The yeah, deep when, magic was written. Yes, I, I was there where the deep magic is written. That's what I quote to my kids when they tell me how to play like Mario Kart or Super Smash Brothers. I was like, be silent. <laughs> I was there when it was. Anyway, so I, 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 I do quote that to my children and they quote it back to me because they think it's hilarious. Um, but but if in that context, if you look carefully, at least the way, the way, the way that is dramatized in the movie, is that the White Witch is not the one who's making Aslan give his life. Aslan knows the law he wrote, right? So he's only being consistent with the system of law he has given. So in one sense, the the payment, the ransom that he is giving is in fact to God, but in this law courtroom, the witch is acting as the prosecutor and using the laws that the judge has put in place. Does that make sense? So, so I think yeah. it's kind of a gross mischaracterization. If it is just to say, if someone's walking around saying the devil owned us and God submitted to the devil and paid him off, that is wrong. That's not good. But if you think about it in terms of like a prosecuting attorney uh, trying to, to pro- you know, the accuser of the brethren, Satanas, who's the, the accuser of the brethren coming after Christians, and Jesus is, is faithful to God's law to fulfill the the that place in that kind of courtroom setting then it kind of makes sense um any yeah, thoughts on that you, country yeah well i think that the first of all i think we're in total agreement god having to pay the devil off uh we're gonna gonna we're just gonna go with no like the devil didn't have like uh there was not god having to pay the devil off that ransoming the devil. I'm going to go with no on that. Uh, I I like the way that you characterized it. And, uh, and I think that might be the explanation, but I also think, you you know, so Mark 10 45, and I think Matthew 20 is the other scripture where he says something similar. He uses a different Greek word in first Timothy two five. But that's a word used only one time in the new Testament. Um, So any of the point being any of the times where the word ransom is mentioned, the devil is not mentioned in close proximity. So it's not obvious that the ra- that the devil is in any way involved in the ransom. We sure. have to read that into it. Now, we, we do have to draw a conclusion. Okay, well, ransom is tied to redemption, which is tied to slavery. So we were enslaved and redeemed from slavery by the ransom payment of Christ's death on the cross. Okay, all, all on the same page there. Okay, but who was the ransom paid to? Well, maybe the devil, because we certainly were enslaved to the devil. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, so the prince of the power of the air, all, all of us followed after him with gratifying cravings of our sinful nature, etc. So we were certainly enslaved to the devil, the devil, but I think I would be inclined to think that uh, Jesus is probably not talking about our enslavement to the devil here, although he would certainly affirm that we're enslaved to the devil before we know Jesus. Uh, but rather our enslavement to sin, sort of like when he says uh, in John chapter 8 that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Um, and, and so I, 
but like here's here's a, a verse from Paul where he uses similar language of enslavement to sin. This is Romans chapter six. Uh, he says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. And so on, death will no longer have dominion. And so there, it's a very, very New Testament uh, concept to say we were enslaved to sin. Sin was our slave master, and we were set free from sin. Paul directly says that. Now, Paul doesn't use the language of ransom there, but he does use the language of slavery, which is tied into the entire theme. So, Josh, I think it's very possible that we're just pushing it too far to even bring the devil into this conversation, and that when we talk about a, a ransom payment, Jesus is uh, paying off sin, so to speak, uh, so that we might be liberated from its lordship over our lives and set free to live. And I also prefer him. that interpretation of ransom theory. Um, 100% agree. I think if Satan is brought into this conversation, you can see like in, uh, is, it, is it Zechariah? Where Satan is like literally in a courtroom and accusing. Yeah, Zechariah 3. Yeah. So so anyway, so it, it's to say that you can see the parallels potentially. Um, but I think that to Michael's point, the actual texts that are being pointed to have a better explanatory power when you point the the thing that's being ransomed, you're being ransomed from is in fact sin, which again is a punishment that God put in place rather than an actual person that God is somehow subservient to. So uh, very much agree with that. So let's move on to our next one here. This is one that has tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of people saying this is the atonement theory model because we have the most texts in uh, early church history pointing to this specific model, and it's the Christus victor, Christ the victor, Christ the winner, the defeater of the devil. Uh, He beat up the bad guy, right? Uh, And that's what the atonement does. The atonement is the defeat of Satan. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, and you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all uh, our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us Uh, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's right. Jesus got into into a cage, a steel death trap with Satan and beat the trash out of him. Uh, Hallelujah. uh, Hebrews (laughs) 2. Is that the message version right there? That is. That's what it is. It's a hoochie daddy. No. So Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, uh, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So again, uh, this is saying that the model of the atonement is is best articulated, best uh, uh, understood as God defeating the devil. And I believe the reason that this was the the most popular of the atonement theories that we see in the church fathers is because of the level of persecution they experienced. Because the message of Christus Victor is it looks like he was being defeated, but he was actually winning. And when you're losing your life and Nero is burning you alive in his garden parties, the idea that uh you think I'm burning alive here and you're beating me but actually I'm winning, like that's a really important message to be proclaiming that through death, Christ defeats the devil. 
And for us to relive that kind of, uh, 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 you know, have that mind in you that was in Christ, I'm defeating the devil by being faithful unto death. Um, that's a, that is a extremely powerful reality. And the reason I think that Christus Victor was so popular in the first few centuries, Michael, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you're putting out there like a theory about why it was so popular. And I think it, it carries some water because each of these, um, atonement theories, they speak to just a different element in the way they apply to the Christian life. So for instance, if I'm really struggling, uh, if I'm really struggling with feelings of condemnation, like I am just such a sinner and I'm so bad, I'm worse than everybody else, and I just never can crawl out of it. If I'm just like overburdened by uh, by condemnation, uh, what really helps me is penal substitutionary atonement to know that Jesus bore my legal condemnation before God, so that His innocence is placed upon me. However, on the other hand, and of course, I, so I'm jumping ahead a little bit to talk about PSA, but you know, here we are, good Protestants, but just keep, we just can't, can't not bring up PSA. But PSA um, all the way. <laughs> it's going to be a shirt. But, uh, I know. I know. I just saw our Eastern Orthodox buddy in the chat, Dustin Neely. He's like, oh, this is hopeless. PSA, guys, I'm out. Oh, man. <laughs> but <laughs> I like Dustin, though. Anyway, um, Christus Victor, on the other hand, like, man, if you're just like struggling with, uh, if you're struggling with just like spiritual warfare and it just feels like the devil is just coming strong against you, man, it's, it's a huge thing to know. I mean, just this week I was uh, casting out some, uh, some demons from somebody and I started just quoting one uh, PSA or not PSA verse, one Christus Victor verse after another. I start uh, quoting Colossians chapter two, Jesus, you disarmed the principalities and powers. Uh, Colossians chapter two, uh, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter two, you came that you might destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil. First uh, John three, I believe it's verse eight, uh, that the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I don't think I quoted all of those, but, uh, but I, I started quoting Christus Victor verses and, and so kind of whatever situation that you're in, again, all of these, there's a beauty to them. It's a, it's a kaleidoscope. And you, you look at it from this angle, you look at it from that angle, and it's, it's beautiful from every angle. It's different from every angle. But I think the one thing that's just beautiful about uh, Christus Victor is, uh, is it just portrays Christ in victory. But uh, in a way that is, I think... Um, that's just special. I mean, even, even PSA, I mean, it's Jesus, he died on a cross as you know, he paid the penalty, but the emphasis is upon Jesus death there. Certainly his resurrection needed to happen for the PSA to go into a, or for the penal substitutionary atonement to actually be made efficacious. Uh, but the emphasis is, is upon Jesus's death. Uh, Christus Victor, the emphasis is on Christ's victory. And uh, they both are powerful. I mean, hey, uh, let me know no, nothing else among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. They're both powerful. But I, I think to your point, Josh, in different situations and scenarios, in the case you described going back into history, one theory might take precedence over another. And, and I think the reason PSA took precedence in the Reformation was not because it was a new doctrine. Go read William Lane Craig's book on the atonement, oh, and yeah. he lists loads of church fathers who taught PSA directly and openly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
But because of the sort of battle with the Roman Catholic Church over justification and the nature of atonement and all that took place there, there, there needed to be an emphasis on it. But that doesn't mean it was new in church history. So I, I think I would agree with you, Josh. So in, in my point, I'm not saying definitively that's why as much as in, I, I, Michael picked up on it instantly, as much as it is, I, I think that there's a reason it was so important. And, and I, I think the same reason, I think there's a reason today that we need to be fighting for penal substitution. I'll get that towards the end when we talk about PSA. But it's really important that we talk about ransom theory and Christus Victor and how they're different. So ransom theory is paying off sin or paying off the devil. Typically, Christus Victor is defeating the devil. It is different than ransom theory because it's conquering Satan. And that one of the main reasons for the crucifixion, main reasons for the atonement, is that in that work itself, Satan is destroyed. He nails uh, that, that account to the tree. And by doing so, he disarms these principalities. So I would just say that if you look at these texts, um, Christus Victor is absolutely true. Like, I just don't see how a Christian can deny Christus Victor. Maybe that's a stretch. It, it would be difficult to, because Satan has definitely been defeated. We have explicit scriptures that say as much. So it's not a theory to me. Christus Victor is fact. It is real. It is true. Um, Michael, do you have anything else on that that you would want to add? Christus Victor, do you, do you think it, it even qualifies as a theory? I, I don't like calling it a theory. No, it, it's for sure. Like, I think to be a... <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't know how a Christian could think that it wasn't real. Exactly. You know, the lib liberal theologians will come in and they'll try to redefine Satan as just a symbol of evil. Well, then, of course, you're going to get rid of Christus Victor. Um, and you're just going to say, well, Jesus just conquered evil on the cross. And, uh, but that's not even Christian. It's not even Christian. I mean, if, you're, uh, if you've gone down the road of liberal theology, and I'm not talking about political liberal, I'm talking about theological liberalism, where suddenly the Bible's not the word of God, and Jesus isn't Jesus, and God isn't God, and you just kind of redefine everything. Well, you, don't call yourself a Christian. You're not a Christian. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity uh, affirms the scripture, and Christianity affirms the historic uh, so-called rule of faith, the basic tenets of orthodoxy as it's been defined for the last 2000 years. Um, let's talk about satisfaction theory a little bit. And uh, this one's interesting because there's, there's a slight distinction. I think a lot of times, uh, An so Anselm is credited with, uh, with uh, kind of articulating satisfaction theory. And sometimes it gets a little muddled with penal substitutionary atonement. There, I got another chance to bring it up, Josh. But um, Satisfaction theory of the atonement, um, it's, it's basically goes like this, that Jesus' death, uh, it's satis it satisfied, it satisfied God. I mean, it's really it. It satisfied God, but it takes less of a legal dimension than penal substitution, where penal substitution, it's like a, a legal debt was, uh, was owed, uh, justice was demanded, and Jesus, Jesus satisfied that demand of justice on the cross. So there's a, a parallel, a similarity, and that both are ad, uh, addressing satisfying God, where penal substitutionary atonement is satisfying the legal demands of a just God. Uh, satisfaction is more focused on honor. So we dishonored God. And so uh, Jesus, through his death on the cross, sort of paid off that dishonor and honored God. And, uh, and so he, uh, it, it, so it takes more of that approach. And, uh, 
Josh, would you is that about how you would articulate it? And and do you want to uh, again put some qualifications there in terms of how it differentiates from ransom theory as we try to compare these theories? Man, if I was going to look at satisfaction, um, someone in the comment section gave my one of my favorite comments of this video. Mick Jagger's favorite theory. Can't I get, get no, no satisfaction. No. Okay, okay. Anyway, uh, this uh, this. Uh, all, all jesting aside, um, satisfaction theory um, is not God defeats the devil or God owes the devil um, or that God uh, or that God even owes God, but that humanity owes God in that some human has to perfectly meet this mark that satisfies the desire in God's heart. You said honor that that word works. Um, for what God desires humanity to be. So it has like this recapitulation tone to it, uh, but this standard, this perfect standard that has to be met. Whereas uh, penal substitution seems to be like sin is the thing. Like it is evil, it is bad, and God has got judgment coming with that. Uh, so it, it, it seems like penal substitution has more to do with like legal demands than satisfaction theory. And it, it's almost like you're splitting hairs when you talk about the differences between satisfaction and penal substitution, because a lot of the Protestants are pointing to Anselm when they're articulating penal substitution. Um, so there's not a lot of a lot of differences, but let's talk about it real quick. This is Anselm's quote. He says, uh, but beyond all this, uh, there was a debt among which needs to be paid for, as I said before, all men were due to die. Uh, here then in the second reason why the word that dwelt among us, namely that having provided his Godhead, uh, having proved his Godhead by his works, he might offer the sacrifice on behalf of all, surrendering his own temple to death in place of all, uh, to settle man's account with death and free him from the primal transgression. This is Anselm on the Incarnation. Um, uh, is it on the Incarnation? Yeah, I think it is on the Incarnation. That's the title of that book. Um, so uh, Ransom Theory is, is very similar to Penal Substitution. It's going to talk about Christ's uh, perfection, Christ's holiness, uh, Christ uh, rightly uh, living before God and that being attached in the crucifixion. Any, anything you want to add to that, Michael? You're muted, my guy. There you go. Yeah, I was looking up a quote, but I'm uh, maybe I'll come back to it later. Okay. Um, no, but I'm I'm ready for penal substitutionary atonement if you want to go there. Let's do it. Yeah, penal substitutionary Let's atonement. Uh, the penal code, think of like a law, a rule, substitutionary in our place, atonement, make peace with us and God, right? Uh, it's a quick way to think of penal substitutionary atonement. Christ's death satisfies the wrath of God against sin. Um, this is different in some ways in satisfaction theory in that satisfaction, uh, satisfaction is humanity uh, owes God a payment in PSA, God demands a punishment. So there's just a little bit difference of a nuance there. Um, Jesus is called the Lamb of God in John 1.29. Remember when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, Jesus specifically dies on Passover. Isaiah 53 talks about a suffering servant like a lamb. It, it, it speaks of that specifically. And when you have an understanding of Passover, you have an understanding of the sacrifice system within Judaism, there's this massive meta-narrative of the Old Testament and the New Testament laying the groundworks for uh, this this lamb taking the place 
uh, of Israel and receiving the necessary judgment for Israel throughout the Old Testament. And when Christ comes, he's the perfect type that fulfills all of those shadows. He's the fullness that comes and replaces all of those lesser models. Uh, So he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's a spotless Lamb who's holy and perfect and innocent. And he, he fulfills all of the laws, the penal code, if you will. And then he substitutes his credit for our credit. We get his. It's imputed to us forensically. I'll go and use all the Protestant words. It's forensically transmitted to us that we are objectively righteous in the sight of God. And then Christ absorbs that sin, if you will, and receives the punishment for that sin on our behalf. Uh, That is penal substitutionary atonement. Michael, you got scriptures or quotes or fun facts? Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a big one where it says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. So our sin was, in in Protestant language, we would say imputed unto Jesus. So God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Now that doesn't mean, as some preachers have recently said and gotten into trouble for with good reason, that doesn't mean that Jesus literally became a blasphemer, that he literally became an adulterer and a I, some other words I don't even want to repeat, but uh, you know, a popular preacher was saying those kinds of things, and uh, he just shouldn't have said them. But uh, no, what it means is that Jesus is, or that our sin was imputed upon Jesus, and so uh, it it was uh, forensic, if you will, uh, and as was his imputation of righteousness to us, forensic. And that word forensic it means uh, kind of differentiated from. Like it's not like a medical change, like as if there was a uh, a change inside of my heart, but the uh, but the righteousness of Christ was placed upon me like clothes, and my sin was placed upon him like clothes. Okay, so there was an imputation of my sin to him and his righteousness on onto me, and that imputation is a big part, and it has roots back in the Old Testament when the high priest would lay his hands upon the animal as a symbolic imputation of the sins of the people onto the onto the creature before it would be uh, sacrificed, and uh, and so we've had all of these uh, these the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and for all of. Jewish history being sacrificed in uh, in order to point forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, uh, who uh, who would become our atonement, our propitiation. That word propitiation is an important word. It's used a few places in the New Testament. It's used in Romans chapter three. It's used in Hebrews two and First John two and four. I think those are the four places. I might be missing one, but. Um, uh, I, let me read uh, the, the word propitiation. Leon Morris has the definitive work on this, an outstanding theologian, uh, on uh, on the atonement. And, uh, and so you can go and just check out that book. And uh, it's a great read, but he he defines what propitiation is. And he looks through all the ancient sources. And he says that propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away wrath or a sacrifice that turns away wrath and makes one propitious or favorable toward so uh, so our, our, the sacrifice of Jesus turned God the Father's wrath away and made God favorable or propitious toward us. Uh, here is Romans 3, one of the examples where it uses the word propitiation. Um, we'll start in verse 23, a famous one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means declared righteous. It's a courtroom term. Um, 
by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice that turns away wrath, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So at the cross, yes, do we see mercy? Absolutely. God is the justifier. He declares us righteous. In Romans 4, 5, he's going to say that he justifies the ungodly. Okay, so God God shows mercy to sinners by justifying us. He's the justifier, but it also says that he's just. And this is the part of the cross that people often overlook. The cross displays both the mercy and the justice of God simultaneously. And so how does God show his justice? Well, he talks before that where it looked like God passed over the sins in his forbearance. He passed over the sins previously committed. And so think the sins of Adam, the sins of Moses, the sins of David, the sins of Ezekiel, the sins of all these saints. Like how, how were these saints having their sins forgiven? How was David writing in Psalm 32, blessed is him whose transgression is forgiven. How was how any forgiveness happening before sin was paid for on the cross? Well, uh, the, the answer in Romans 3 is that the cross looks for, backward as well as forward. So all of those sins, it's like they were waiting for that moment to be poured on Jesus. But the but at the cross, Jesus prayed, paid not just for their sins in history, but for our sins in the future. And and so the the cross, you can almost think of those two horizontal beams is pointing both ways into uh, into the past of history and into the future. And then all who place their faith in Jesus would have their sins placed upon Jesus's shoulders so that God could be declared both just and the justifier. Uh, so he's he's righteous. He appeared to not be righteous in the Old Testament because he was just forgiving sin, but bam, at the cross, it was paid for. And uh, and, and so he's just and the justifier. So uh, there, there's my little explanation of Romans 3. Josh, what would you add? Or I, man, I, I would add very, very away. little. And I know <laughs> that you've got a football game you've got to get to for your boy. So I want to oh, not good. commit the sin of Pharaoh and know when to let God's people go. Anyway, um, I want <laughs> to <laughs> grab this. That's a, that one preacher joke I've got. Um, I'm ready to uh, to wrap this up and encourage you guys to study atonement theories, not to think these things as combative. In the world of theology, people want to pit these things against each other. Uh, and in the world of non-theology, uh, I'll call it non-theology because I think there are people out there building straw men in particular against penal substitutionary atonement, uh, saying that it's cosmic child abuse. And, and they have not I don't believe have done faithful scholarship on the matter. There are people in the comment section who are saying, I've studied penal substitution and I don't care for it. I'm not saying that they have done poor scholarship. I'm talking about guys like Brian Zahn, who have written things like Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which horribly misrepresents what is rightfully and historically taught about penal substitution. So if you have read penal substitution, you've studied it, you disagree with it, I think you're wrong, um, but I'm not. I'm not saying that just because you disagree with me, you have bad scholarship. I'm just saying there is a ton of evil scholarship that misrepresents right. people horribly. Right. But you would say you, you would say that in order to be brothers and sisters in the faith, they do need to believe Jesus died for sins. Now, all systems they, of atonement believe that. Right. So, how they particularly define the mechanics of it? I mean. You, you read N.T. Wright, and you're like, oh my gosh, everything I just read sounds like you're not penal substitutionary atonement. 
And then he's like, but I believe in penal substitutionary atonement, depending on how you define it. So I, I don't think there's going to be like, uh, you know, in heaven and on judgment day, this like um, a, a degree of hair splitting where if if we don't define it absolutely perfectly, precisely what happened on the cross uh, that we're like damned for eternity, I think it's really important. I think it's really important. Uh, but in the least, you have to be able to say, Jesus died for me. You Agreed. have to believe that and that he rose from the dead and to place your your faith, your uh, your trust in him. You have to at least do that, regardless of whether you can articulate the mechanics. And and uh, like I said at, at an earlier part of the show, the reason I think penal substitution is so important today is because we're living in a world where morality is relative to the person. Like morality is, is in the eye of the beholder. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And, uh, you know, what is it to be male? What is it to be female? What is it to commit adultery? What is it to live with a fiance? You know, what is really sex? You know, certain acts are permissible and other acts aren't permissible. Uh, you know, when it comes to what is sin, right? And we have so diluted what sin is. Penal substitution is very, very, very important because we don't even understand anymore that there is a consequence that deserves death uh, for our sin. And, and we won't understand what the weight of sin actually is until we tie it to the cross. And that's one of the reasons that I think penal substitution is so important for us today. Anyway, let's wrap the show up, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. Uh, like, share, subscribe. Links in the description if you want to support the channel. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal or recurring gift on Patreon. Also want to remind you, this conference only has a few spots left. If you want to register, I bet you this week will be done. I bet you this week will be completely registered up uh, full uh, of slots. So if you're interested in going to the Healing and Deliverance Conference in North Carolina, click the link in the description of the video and go register for that conference. There's not going to be a lot of time. So uh, I would highly encourage that. We will see you guys next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time as we keep cranking out more content here. Uh, Tuesday's yeah, yeah. Spooky Evangelism has been pretty lit. Uh, really cool stuff. Uh, we've got like neo-paganism, I think, next week uh, or tomorrow. That's going to be really good. Uh, it's not just paganism, bro. It's neo-paganism. It's neo-paganism. Yeah, it's like it's like Elijah does a really Matrix. good job, man. Elijah and, does uh, his stuff. The, the Wednesday show that we're doing is on the new Apostolic Reformation Statement that was released by yes. Dr. Brown and we, uh, Joseph. We just Michael. recorded it. Yeah. Super good. So going to be really good. All right, guys. Hugs and kisses. Uh, God bless you guys. Yeah. Support the channel. Like, subscribe. Do all the things. Thanks, guys. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.